Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode. And of course, beware of spoilers. Welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. And we are here today with episode 35 of the podcast, a 60th anniversary movie talking about the birds. You know what? Let's say this before we kick off our coverage of the birds. We're nearing 3,000 total downloads. Yeah, we are. We're very close. Which is so amazing. So thanks to everybody who listens and downloads. And maybe you download and you don't listen or you wait and then you stack them all up and listen to them all at one time, which is awesome, too, because I totally also do that for long drives. I totally like download several and then I'm like, okay, all right, cool. So thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you to our Patreon patrons who help make Attack the Final Girls happen. And, you know, if you haven't gotten in on the Patreon thing, I'll throw some other numbers out there, which is that we are already on episode four of Haunting of Hill House in our Patreon exclusive bonus series. We also have a lot, a number I don't remember, of hot takes on brand new movies available for our patrons. And uh, you can come hang out with us on Discord there. So if you're interested in that, you can check out uh, what we have to offer at patreon.com slash attack of the final girls. Yes. And we have some really, really, really budget-friendly ways to support us from the very, very small to the very, very big. But it's all big to us because we're just really stoked. Anytime there's a new patron, we freak out. Yeah, I feel like I need like a constant supply of confetti with me at all times. Just so like if we get a new patron, wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, I can just throw confetti in the air because that's how excited I get. Yeah. I wish that they had silent poppers, like those those party popper things. I hate unexpected loud noises. I know that sounds, it sounds oxymoronic, but I hate unexpected noises that I don't know exactly when it's going to happen. Example is balloons popping. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Even if somebody is like holding it and then like gonna poke it or gonna stab it or whatever to pop it, can't stand it. Yeah. Don't like it. Yeah. That makes sense. Which is very strange considering we have a horror movie podcast and I've we've probably <laughs> seen like some of the most gritty and uncomfortable and cringeworthy movies of all time. And I'm like, yeah, balloons popping though. I can't handle it. <laughs> it scares me. I don't like it. <laughs> it's scary. But you know what else is scary? Uh, birds. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, you know, people say bird brain. You know, as like an insult, but like birds, they have stuff going on in there. I don't know what that stuff is. And that scares me even more. Yes. Yes. You're like, are you going to bite me? Are you going to try and eat my flesh? What exactly are you planning? Yeah. They are little dinosaurs. They are. They really are. They're just a hop, skip and a jump away from velociraptors and and pterodactyls and pterodons. And we all know... If you've seen the movie Dinosaur or any of the Jurassic Park movies, the flying dinosaurs are nothing to sneeze at. No, they're not. They're scary. Yeah. They have tiny teeth and they fly. Yeah. And now most birds don't have teeth, obviously, but still they fly and they have sharp beaks. They do. They do. And they get pretty brutal. I mean, I am the crazy lady who has lots and lots of bird feeders in my backyard and I watch them while I do dishes maybe a little obsessively and like they will fight over bird feeder positions and I'm like I don't want to be in the middle of that hummingbirds are a little scary to me because they're kind of like ant-man and they live in the quantum realm because they move so fast it's weird but also if we're talking about huge birds cassowaries and emus are like notoriously aggressive cassowaries are very dangerous and they actually kill a lot of people so it's kind of terrifying anytime i see one at a zoo i'm like "Uh uh-uh they have dinosaur claws yeah it's straight up not a good time. <laughs> I am I am like simultaneously like I watch bird videos like on TikTok and stuff like parrots and stuff saying sassy things. Mm-hmm. But like that is a respect out of fear. <laughs> I'm like, you're amusing me, but I respect you. And also that parrot is going to live longer than you. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. That's part of the reason why I would never get a bird is because like. Something that would outlive me, although I would want to maybe communally take care of something like that. Mm-hmm. I would never be able to like, take personal ownership over something that's going to be here after I'm gone. 
because they'll know my secrets. That's true. And they can talk. So you don't know what they're going to reveal. Yeah, no thanks. Yeah. I've seen a lot of bird rescues that specifically deal in like abandoned like birds. Oh, yeah. Um, I feel like now I'm going to have to post something about this on her Twitter feed. Like, if you want to help support a bird rescue for like lost and abandoned birds, we should do that. The Raptor Center. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We do have a like a local Raptor Center. Is it called Glen Helen? Raptor yeah, it's the Raptor Center at Glen Helen okay. in, in Yellow Springs. And they're awesome. They do amazing work. They help, like, birds that have been hit by cars or, you know, hurt in some way. They rehabilitate them to the best of their ability and try to, you know, release them back into the wild. And there are a few that end up not being able to be released back into the wild. And so they become, like, ambassador birds in their permanent residence at the Raptor Center they're real neat. They had, I don't know, I assume he's still around, a very grumpy old bald eagle that was just a delight because he was just, you could tell, like, you could tell his personality. He was a grumpy old man. I don't think that there are any bald eagles that have good, uh, <laughs> like, positive grumpy. personality. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, they are Sam Eagle. Like, Yeah, that's true. They are literally Sam Eagle. There aren't any other personalities of bald eagles yeah. that are anything aside from being crotchety old Sam Eagle. Yeah. There's also a raptor center in Alaska that has a really great TikTok where they post their resident birds there. And there are these snowy owls that are amazing. How did you come across Alaskan raptor center TikTok? Bless Juliet. the algorithm. <laughs> I was like, what are you watching to get you to get this kind of stuff in I don't, your algorithm? I don't know, but... I need it to continue coming into my life. Dear U.S. government, if you're listening, don't take this away from me. It's my only joy. (laughs) Oh, man. This is amazing. Okay. (laughs) Juliet and I have had a really, really long week. It's been a week. It's been a long life. (laughs) Let's be honest here. But anyways, to get back to the subject at hand, we watched The Birds today. And Juliet has seen this movie pretty much a quadrillion times. Oh, yeah. Tons and tons of times. Um, I, this was my first watch. I've actually never seen The Birds before, which hilarious because I was just like, I've seen all the horror movies. But funny fact, besides this one, the only other Hitchcock movie I've ever seen is Psycho all the way through. I've seen, of course, seen clips of like Rear Window and North by... North, North by Northwest. Northwest. Okay. Yeah. I thought that's what it was. And then I was like, wait, they're South by Southwest, though. So obviously it has to be directly opposite. So it's going to be North by Northeast. No. But yeah, this is only the second full Alfred Hitchcock movie that I've watched. I got the opportunity to see Psycho in the theater. So one of our local, I don't know, would you call it like a, would you call the Victoria Theater like a playhouse? Not really a playhouse, but... I guess. I mean, it's an old historic theater. It's yeah. mostly used for theatrical performances, musical theater, ballet, opera, things like that. But occasionally they show films. They used to do this really cool thing. And Victoria Theater, if you're listening, please bring this back. Seriously. In the summer, they did this thing called Real Cool Films. And then they would have nighttime films that they would show. So they would have like your late afternoon showing on the weekends. And then they would have like a real late one. Mm-hmm. So you would have things like Planet of the Apes, first time I ever saw Planet of the Apes was there. Nice. First time I ever saw Psycho was there. But then they would do like late, late movies and it would be like Rocky Horror Picture Show. Mm -hmm. This is Spinal Tap. So if you're listening, please bring it back. We love it. We would do so many horror movies. We would. It would be great. Yeah. I think it's one of those things that just didn't come back after the pandemic. They did it in 2019 Mm -hmm. because I saw Moulin Rouge on my birthday. Yes. But yeah, I don't think they've brought it back since the pandemic and they definitely should. Especially now, I feel like. Yes. Yes. Anyways. Because we said so. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We're speaking it out into the ether. Hopefully yes. they will grace us with its presence again this year. So Alfred Hitchcock movies to me are kind of a treat. I don't want to binge it. I don't want to like watch all, you know, his entire filmography and then like burn myself out. Because I find, although when I went to see Psycho the very first time, folks in the theater actually laughed at the mother reveal, um, which felt very disingenuous because although that reveal is kind of like already baked into culture and Mm -hmm. everybody knows that that's going to happen. I still felt like it was a very telling and revelatory moment. Oh yeah. And I felt like it turned the movie on a dime basically because we all just thought, Oh, Norman, he just dresses up like his mother and kills people. And that's all we have to worry about. Yeah. But no, it's more sinister than that. So anyways, 
everybody laughed in the theater. And I just kind of chalked that up to like, oh, modern moviegoers are expecting a higher level or what have you. So I've kind of steered away from them because although I know how most of them end or like what the subject matter is for most of Hitchcock's movies, the other reason why I've avoided them is because I know that Alfred Hitchcock was a piece of shit. Right. So that's the other part of why. I know. I haven't watched his movies, albeit iconic. And I am very interested in seeing, especially Vertigo and Rear Window. I just have avoided them because he was he was not a good human being. No, he wasn't. And I would say beyond just Vertigo and Rear Window, his early stuff is so fascinating. Like Strangers on a Train is amazing. Um, you know, at, that is like a cinema classic. And there are so many things that you can take from his work and you can see not just how it translated into the history of cinema that followed, but you can also see like all of these like pop culture things that you won't even realize, like stuff from like Tiny Toons and stuff. That you're like, oh my gosh, that's a Hitchcock parody. You know, there's so, so much. Like yeah. there is a thing on Sesame Street that I remember growing up that was a parody of 39 Steps. So like that's oh, wow. how baked into culture he is. But he was also a very shitty person. So yeah. like, you know, it's a both and. And I feel like... <sighs> You know, not to go down a rabbit hole because I actively deal with this with musicians all the time, but it's like, you know, when do you separate the art from the artist? You know, it's the Stanley Kubrick question. There are tons of bad men that were lauded as geniuses in all different art forms. And it's like, where do you draw the line between, on the one hand, yes, perhaps legitimate genius that also was a shitty person, you know? And I don't know. Those lines change for me all the time in terms of like what I'm willing to engage with or what I'm willing to talk about. Yeah. Kind of a thing. I feel like it's kind of baked into your life, especially Mm -hmm. like it it, is. It's something that hits really close to home for you. So it's that makes it so much more difficult because it feels very personal as well as also professional. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Like in good and bad ways. But for me, I can watch a film and enjoy it and understand who made it and all of the the hearts that kind of went into the production of it. But I will also always in the same breath say, yeah, Psycho is awesome. Alfred Hitchcock's a piece of shit. Yep. I will always say those in the same breath. Does that take away from how I feel about Psycho? No. Does it make my ability to enjoy it any less? I don't think so. But I'm definitely always going to level set and say, Mm -hmm. he's also a piece of shit. Exactly. Well, and I think with film, too, I mean, music is certainly collaborative, but it becomes a little more singular. It's a person or an ensemble. With film, it is the result of so many people and so many people's craft and talent. There was a conversation at a conference I was at talking about, you know, how we deal with problematic men in particular, but problematic figures in music. And um, somebody was talking about it in terms of classical music and made a really good point that I think also applies to film, which is that if you have a problematic conductor, let's Mm -hmm. say, and you decide, you know, to no longer feature work from that conductor, well, that means you're also not featuring work from that conductor's ensemble and perhaps soloists whose only recorded work is under the baton of that conductor. So you're sort of weighing the fairness of that and the the equity of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yes, the leader of the thing, you know, the air quotes leader of the thing may have been problematic, but who else that was part of that production is now getting erased? And is that fair? Sure. There's no right or wrong answer to that, I, yeah. don't, I don't think. But I think it's a really good thing to consider. Sure. And, I think it definitely applies to film, too. Yeah. And I would respect anyone who would say, I'm not going to engage with Alfred Hitchcock's films. Absolutely. I would never try to persuade somebody to watch them if that is the line that they're going to draw. If they're going to say, like, I won't watch Kubrick's movies. I don't watch directors who exploit women. The long laundry list of that, not, I mean, it's terrible, but I won't watch Weinstein's films produce movies. I would absolutely support that. You and I live in a very unique time where we're post Me Too, we're yep. post kind of that like outing of all of the bad behavior that men have gotten away with for so long. And so many movies from our childhoods are Weinstein produced. Yeah. And every time I see that badge, I'm like, you know, this really freaking sucks. But at the same time, I'm like, 
Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion is one of my top three favorite movies of all time. And it doesn't make me love Romeo and Michelle less, but it does make me say at the beginning of every, every time I watch it, I can't even remember if that's the one I'm thinking of. Maybe it's Clueless, but whichever Weinstein produced movie that I love so much, at the beginning of it, I say, I remind myself, Harvey Weinstein is a piece of shit and right. I will never support him ever again. However, I love this film and right. I really would love to support everybody who was a part of making it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's how I feel about that. Yeah, I think there's a way you can, you know, especially when we talk about stuff where people have already gotten the money and all of that, like you're not giving them any more money at this sure. point. Like, especially when I think about like, you know, the Hitchcock film that we watched tonight is part of my DVD collection. I bought it probably when it came out in 2000. You know, they've got my money right. already. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that. But also, I think it's really good to be kind of intentional as yeah. we, you know, if we choose to consume these pieces of art, to be intentional about like acknowledging that. Like, yeah. hey, I'm going to still engage with this, but I'm going to do it remembering the context here and thinking about that. And that can change the way we watch something or not. Yeah. And I think that's okay, too. And may we always remember that there's no ethical consumption or capitalism. Amen. So just keep in mind that you do not feel guilty about absorbing a piece of art. So on the other end of that, if you don't feel guilty about absorbing a piece of art, because consider that there's no there's uh, let's be intentional let's make sure that we're acknowledging who and what we're excluding from these conversations Mm -hmm. but also there's no ethical consumption under capitalism yeah and also like don't beat yourself up you know if you are a person i mean i think maybe this is more the case with weinstein movies but like i'll just use the movie we're talking about tonight if the birds is like a beloved movie from your childhood and it brings you some kind of comfort or memories of watching it with you know somebody close to you or whatever like don't let the fact that Hitchcock was a shitty person take that experience of the film away from you yeah because I think we have a tendency to kind of do that Mm -hmm. like to let somebody else's bad behavior erase our own experience with a piece of art yes and I don't think that that's knowing there's no ethical consumption under capitalism I don't think that's fair right Plus, history gets rewritten a lot yeah. um, in ways where things have been revealed that we did not know before. Yep, absolutely. Which changes things, uh, actors, behavior, directors, writers, et cetera, et cetera. So that's real. Mm-hmm. There's no ethical consumption under capitalism. So Period. all the rules are off. <laughs> like, just saying. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm glad that we had the opportunity to talk about this because I feel like that's a very real, valid concern that was a huge thing for me about Jeepers Creepers. Totally. Yeah. Like, uh, sorry, I know that mentioning that is triggering, but like the first Jeepers Creepers movie was one of my all time favorites. I love the monster design. Um, well, and nobody knew then. Right. And Justin you know. Long was fantastic. Like, one of my all time favorite movies for a really long time. And then once everything kind of rolled out, the allegations against the director and then his subsequent jail time yeah it got to the point where i was like man can i watch this can i enjoy this and so finally i had to level set with myself and say yes i can enjoy this i can like it i can remember you know feel all the feelings about this movie but in the same breath i always need to make sure that i point out that director is a piece of shit so yeah exactly and like were he to make something again would you give him your money no (laughs) absolutely not exactly (laughs) no i would never ever ever do that yeah so yeah just saying yeah in general so i don't know a lot about hitchcock juliet knows a lot more than i do about hitchcock um i listened to an episode of behind the bastards shout out to that podcast because it's fascinating They did an episode on Alfred Hitchcock and how he was a terrible human being. Like, he was terrible outside of the fact that he treated women like garbage. Mm -hmm. But for our purposes, kind of what we're going to be talking about today, he was terrible to women. He was a horrible womanizer. Yeah, Like, he was married, but basically kind of, like, kicked his wife to the curb and became absolutely obsessed with Tippi Hedren yes to the point where he lorded over her entire career I think at one point he made her sign 
like a years long contract seven with him. years seven year long contract with him she was not allowed to make movies for anybody else and he got full control over yeah. her entire life for those seven years and like tried to he sexually assaulted her on multiple occasions but there was nothing that she could do and she was kind of like under his thumb this entire time really she is delightful she's absolutely gorgeous commanding sort of in this like charming whimsical doesn't take life very seriously way like determined to have fun and Mm -hmm. be aloof all the time at least in what she portrays on screen for this character melanie daniels in this movie she's truly delightful and she lights up the screen and it's very easy to see why hitchcock would have built an entire movie around her as the centerpiece Mm -hmm. Uh, because she's she really she's like attracts all attention to herself she's great at commanding attention and really fulfilling what she's supposed to be doing on screen so i can absolutely see why he did that but hitchcock has a track record of making movies about attractive blonde women mm-hmm. in distress mm-hmm. like breaking bad or doing something bad yep and then consequences happening yeah or even in this case like not even really bad just whimsical Mm-hmm. but being in distress oh yeah and that's kind of concerning his later stuff you see it more and more it's interesting like at the start of his career like it was there but definitely in a more covert way or not super out in the obvious but as his career progressed you saw it more and more and more i had to for film school write a paper so I took a class on Hitchcock. I think I mentioned this in our last episode. One of my film school professors loved Hitchcock films, like wrote a book about Hitchcock films and how Hitchcock, you know, was the master of the suspense thriller and all mm-hmm. of this stuff. It was a really interesting class. I really appreciate the class because it helped me see these films that I already liked in like a completely different way and like was sort of the first, one of my first big understandings of like auteur directing and like, having a style as a director and all of that like you can see it so easily in his work he's not the first person or the first director to do that but he's a good entry point if you're like looking into the study of film like and you're sort of like trying to track how that goes with the director but the flip side of that is i'm trying to remember how this worked we had to do a paper for that class and i think it was like we had to kind of like draw films out of a hat like Films that we weren't watching for the class and weren't as well known, like Vertigo was not on the list. Rear Window was not on the list. And I had to do a paper on Frenzy, which is a later film of his. And like that film, you can see the misogyny like clear as day Mm -hmm. in a way that isn't as overt in his earlier work. I think that that is actually a film that Behind the Bastards called out specifically. I believe that. Was Frenzy. Like later and later in his career, he was kind of losing it. He was kind of going off the deep end a little bit. And his personal frustration was coming out in his films at that point because he really had passed his prime. And at one point in time, he kind of had carte blanche in Hollywood, which is what he wanted and what he expected. He kind of had this like idea that he was the center of the universe and everybody revolved around him, which is really interesting in terms of his relationship with his mother and also the mother figures in this movie. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's all kind of related. It is interesting to see this movie, Psycho, those like top tier Hitchcock movies that gave him that kind of like leeway in Hollywood to do essentially whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted and trap famous film actresses into seven year long contracts, which was fairly unheard of at the time. Oh, yeah. You know, you'd hear about like four year contracts, but those weren't necessarily exclusive. And a lot of times those were made with like a production company. Like Elvis had to make those, Mm -hmm. you know, deals with production companies to make those like goofy musical movies that he did. But it wasn't with one director. Well, and Tippi Hedren had thought that the contract, the seven-year contract, was for Alfred Hitchcock Presents, was for a TV series. And it was not. It was for film. Wow. Yeah. What the hell? Mm -hmm. Trickster. As I understand it, he basically compelled her to sign it in the first place. Like, she was not down. She wanted to kind of play the system, game the system, and make as many movies and the movies that she wanted to make. And... 
I really see parallels. Now that I'm saying it out loud, I really see parallels between her and Marilyn Monroe. I mean, I know Mm -hmm. Monroe was different. I mean, depending on how far into the conspiracy theories you want to go with that. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, there's a lot of parallels there, Mm -hmm. except unfortunately one ended in potential suicide slash drug overdose and Tippi Hendred just kind of fizzled out. Yeah, and it's like on the one hand, you'd like to say it was a product of the Hollywood system of that time of the 60s. But when you also then see the parallels between some of the actresses that, you know, got victimized by Harvey Weinstein and lost their careers or were under the threat of losing their careers or got, you know, essentially blacklisted for many, many years and who are just now maybe seeing their redemption. I mean, not just actresses like, and not just Weinstein, let's talk about Brendan Fraser. Yep. It's not that different from the 60s. You know, right. we like to say that stuff like that is in the past, but it's still actively happening. Yeah. Shelley Duvall comes to mind. Yes, um, absolutely. Kubrick essentially ruined her career, ruined her life, mm-hmm. broke her brain. And Hitchcock was maybe one of the first memorable or first that I can think of off the top of my head directors who flew into stardom and remained there for so long that everybody was just like, well, it's Alfred Hitchcock. Just let him do whatever Mm -hmm. he wants without really (laughs) reining him in. Yeah. And unfortunately, many people were harmed and or their careers ended because of that behavior. Yeah, definitely. I am so glad that we live in a world now where at least the door is starting to open for us to be able to discuss these things yeah. and to know about kind of what's happening mm-hmm. um, or what has happened in recent history. I know that obviously the work is never going to be finished here and there are always going to be rich men that are wielding this power. But as a femme presenting person in the world, I'm glad that at least we're starting to open that door to be able to discuss this. Yeah, that it can be discussed openly and there's an awareness of it. And it's not just like considered like Hollywood gossip. Right. You know, that it's actual like, no, you know, this isn't just like teehee gossip, Mm -hmm. casting couch, blah, blah, blah. Like, no, this is actual criminal behavior Mm -hmm. and should be treated as such and viewed as such. Yeah. This isn't just page six. This is like okay, you're getting charges against you now. exactly. Which definitely not a thing that always happened in the past. Or maybe charges were filed and then they ended up getting dropped from pressure from whatever entity, you know, that was protecting them. But some people are seeing jail time. Let's just hope that the trend continues, that we can continue. We live in a carceral society and I don't typically participate in carceral thinking. However... (laughs) Yeah, exactly. In the case of sexual assault, especially over somebody that you're working with and having that power dynamic, they should be removed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So to tie it back to Psycho, um, you that's a very literal depiction of mommy issues Yeah, with Norman and his mother and, you know, the complicated and weird relationship that they had. But... In this movie, I feel like it is so much more nuanced because you have multiple people who are having mommy issues all at the same time yes. and in very different ways. Mm-hmm. That is such an interesting, it's sort of like adding a facet to Alfred Hitchcock's complicated relationship with his actual mother. Yes. As I understand it, Hitchcock had a weird relationship with his mom. Yeah, yeah. All of the reading I've done points to that as well. He had a a weird relationship with his mother and with authority figures in general. There are some like weird incidents from his childhood, both in his schooling, as well as just some like random encounters that point to like mother issues, authority issues, all of that. And you definitely see that manifest in his film. Like you can see a lot of his deep-seated fears, worries, concerns come out in his work. Not all filmmakers do that, but he's a really good example of somebody that puts their anxieties right onto the screen and right onto their characters. I think comparing and contrasting The Birds and Psycho is like so interesting. They are his two straight-up horror films. You know, there are other films that sort of have a foot in horror but are way more grounded in like the suspense thriller genre. 
But Psycho and the birds are definitely like the two you can say, yes, this is absolutely horror from Hitchcock. And I think the relationship between those two films are just so cool because, as you said, Psycho, you've got mommy issues. The birds, you've got mommy issues manifesting completely differently. There are some sonic things that you can compare and contrast in the two films. It's really fun to take these two as a pair of horror films. And Psycho being black and white. I just actually thought about that. But this movie is in full color. Yes. And it's gorgeous. I don't know why I brought that up now that I'm thinking about well, it. Well, we're but... talking about the two films. Oh, yeah. Do you know the sound thing? No, huh? Okay. So I love this. So Psycho has that beautiful, iconic score from Bernard mm-hmm. Herrmann. Like, everybody knows. Strings all yeah. the way down. Yeah. Everybody knows, like, the opening Psycho theme. They know the theme that's playing in the famous, famous shower scene with Janet Lee. That movie is well known for its score. The Birds has no score. Oh. No musical score. Yeah. It's just weird bird yep. noises. Yeah. That aren't really bird noises. But. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. The that only music we hear in it are the kids singing that weird folk song in the school so scene. Weird. <laughs> and uh, the couple of times that they're at the house, the faucet farm, and oh. Melody is playing the piano. The piano. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Okay. Everything else is effects sound. And it is like air quotes scored. I guess this was Bernard Herrmann's idea for the film. Like he convinced Hitchcock to go without an orchestrated score and to instead focus on using a lot of the same instrumentation and effects that sci-fi films used Mm -hmm. for like UFO sounds to create these like iconic, like very troubling, disturbing bird sounds. And that's what scores the film, not music. Interesting. I'm just going to throw it out there really quick, our main cast of characters. Oh, yeah, we can do that. (laughs) In case anybody has not heard of the film, because like I said, this is the first time I've watched it. So it's called The Birds. It's about (laughs) birds. There are some birds in it. Um, Yeah, like more than one. (laughs) Uh, Less than infinity. Our main cast of characters is Mitch Brenner. He's sort of the patriarch of the farm out in what is it called? Bodega Bay. Bodega Bay. Played by Rod Taylor. I don't know if I already said that, but yeah, Mitch Brenner, played by Rod Taylor. Tippy Hedren, who played Melanie Daniels. She is our flirtress. Yes. I don't know. That's not a word, but... Seductress. Maybe that's too strong a word. Yeah, I think that might be a little heavy. She follows Mitch up to Bodega Bay from San Francisco because he was like catty and flirty with her inside of a bird store i was like trying to search i was like is there a word for a bird store nope just bird store bird store yeah she's a socialite too she's yeah. a newspaper heiress yeah so she runs up there and she's like oh, i'm gonna be flirty and drop off these two love birds to his sister who is named kathy brenner in the movie and is played by veronica cartwright and you may remember her from such roles as alien she was the only other femme presenting scientist on the nostromo also want to give a quick shout out to Jessica Tandy, who played Lydia Brenner, Mitch and Kathy's mother, and uh, Suzanne Plachette, who played Annie Hayworth, the fake friend <laughs> to Melanie <laughs> and real ex-girlfriend of Mitch. And also going to give a quick shout out because I think she's so badass and fun. Miss Ethel Griffies, oh, who plays her. Mrs. Bundy in the movie, and you'll know her. She's the older lady who is at the bar with a cigarette in one hand and a leather driving glove on the other, just doling out bird knowledge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> on she all the unsuspecting like, folks. Hashtag old lady goals. <laughs> like, I want to be her when I grow up. Just rocking the tweed coat and the beret and the driving gloves and just sassing people with bird facts. Yeah. Melody just kind of like offhand says something like, oh, I don't know the difference between a blackbird and a crow. I can't remember which two birds it actually is. But she basically just says that offhand. Or no, she says, I don't know if there's a difference. Yeah. And Mrs. Bunny comes up and she's like, of course there's a difference. (laughs) You crazy person. (laughs) A rowdy person. Not only is there a difference, but now I'm going to explain it all to you and help rile up the local citizenry about the impending bird war. She's like, there's a bird apocalypse that's happening. (laughs) And this woman is like, think of the children. I love that scene so much. It's so, to me, and I don't know if this is what the intent is, but this is how I took it because we were both sitting there like cackle laughing over it. 
it is such a nice break because the beginning's kind of slow. We're building up to this sort of like strange happening that's happening in Bodega Bay. And then we've get some like pretty intense scenes. Uh, Lydia coming across her dead neighbor with his mm-hmm. eyes literally pecked out. That's what pushes it into horror, folks. It's a horror movie. Oh, yeah. That was terrifying, especially because it's like full on in the day. I was like, what? There's no music. There's no yeah. reveal. It's silent. It's just like dead dude with eyes, yeah. without eyes. That like little break when we're at the bar and they're just all like, there's a bird war and there's a drunk guy in the corner and he's like, listen, it's time to drink because there's bird war that's happening. Except he's Irish or Scottish and I can't do the accent. So I'm just not even going to try. It's such an iconic like horror trope scene. Like, well, the scene I'm going to mention echoes it, which is the scene in Jaws, you know, the infamous chalkboard scratch scene where they're trying to figure out what to do about, do we close the beach? Do we not close the beach, etc. Like, that harkens back to this. But moreover, this scene to me harkens back to the monsters are due on Maple Street, one of my favorite Twilight Zone episodes. Like Iconic. It's such a Serling-esque scene yeah. where you're like, on the one hand, like it's comical, but it's also like, it's almost like comical because you're trying not to be disturbed because you're mm-hmm. seeing like human nature on display in its rawest form, which Serling was just the master of. And so I, I really love that scene because you're like laughing, but you're also like, oh, no, this is super real. Like people are this ridiculous, especially when they're under duress. And you could absolutely see something like this legitimately happening in any bustling place right now. Oh, like yeah. just yeah. random people butting into 75% of the way through the conversation. Like, what are you talking about? There's a war happening. Who's being attacked? What's attacking them? And then having to like, explain in tiny bits and pieces what's actually happening to them and then they start getting keyed up and then somebody comes in and they're like everybody needs to get guns shoot them all yeah <laughs> yeah and it's like yep this is america okay yeah. so yeah that was a fantastic scene i absolutely love that scene the lady who's just like you're scaring the children please stop talking about the bird war I also love that the waitress is like, can you hurry up on those Bloody Marys while she's standing there at the table with the children? (laughs) (laughs) And then the son of the kids is like, are we going to get eaten by birds? (laughs) I bet you he did get eaten by birds. I bet he did. Yeah. Low hanging fruit there. Well, and then later they do the classic like turn on the outsider thing, which is, you know, after we see this horrific attack where the birds kind of inadvertently cause an explosion, which like multiple explosions. Yeah. Sounds ridiculous like no the birds did not like bomb something they cause chaos that causes an explosion which is plausible yeah um <laughs> i mean weirder more devastating things have happened oh totally <laughs> yeah yeah but after we sort of witness that then we cut back to this diner and the woman that was worried about the children starts to like lead this turn on melanie and is like well this didn't happen until you got to our town And it defies logic. And yet, again, you can see, like, they're searching for answers. They don't know what to do. She's just like, well, obviously, this is your fault. Yeah. And, like, we were joking. We're like, oh, yeah, she's the bird witch or something. (laughs) But, again, like, I think that's that real human nature coming out. Again, that, like, thing that Serling was so good at, which is, like, you know, we're all scared and confused. So we're going to look for any difference to ascribe this horrific thing to and single somebody out and try to make them the scapegoat because we need a scapegoat to cope. Exactly. And that's human nature, you know, just like finding what is different and then blaming that on it. I mean, if Melanie hadn't come into town that day, maybe that woman had waffles for breakfast and she normally has oatmeal and she'd be like, it's the waffles. I can never eat waffles again because it causes the birds to attack. Like, we don't want to be the reason. Exactly. Did you notice the one other really funny thing that the waitress did? I don't think so. (laughs) Which is, it's kind of toward the beginning of that scene. They're talking about, you know, this is happening on purpose. No, it's totally random. Oh, no, this happened in another place. Why is this happening? What's going on? You know, kind of before the blame starts. And, you know, somebody's saying, well, the birds are kind of like, they don't use this exact wording, but, you know, they're like taking back nature. They're taking back the world from humanity. And at the same time, the waitress is peeking into the kitchen and yelling at the cook like, do you have those plates of fried chicken ready? (laughs) Oh, Oh, man. That's a great juxtaposition. It's super great. That really, I think that scene, although this movie is great for many other reasons, the scene is like peak Hitchcock. Yeah, it is. You're both moving the story forward and you're also 
turning a magnifying glass and a mirror back on the viewer. Yeah. In society kind of at the same time. Yeah. And one of the things he does so well as a director, you know, part of the reason he is considered like the sort of master of the suspense thriller is sort of building that suspicion, you know, both among characters in the film, but with you as an audience member where you don't know who to trust. And People seem ridiculous and right sometimes simultaneously and you're kind of in it with them. Yeah. And I love that. I love being like kind of halfway through a conversation being thrown in and then just being just as confused and also like spiraling off into your own thought process. Yeah. Among other people who are like in totally different places than you. And Mrs. Bundy, she's like, listen, I'm going to tell you the Latin names of all these birds. And I'm going to tell you exactly how they're different. And I'm going to tell you this, that and the other about it because I'm a bird expert for whatever reason. And I also know the exact number of how many birds and species live on the planet. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, so she's there. And then there's the drunk guy in the corner who's like, quoting biblical scripture you know like about how you need to get drunk before you go out to fight demons or whatever it is that he's quoting and then the cook in the kitchen coming out and being like what are we talking about who are we fighting who's attacking what (laughs) and the kids are like we're gonna get eaten oh it's such a good cross-section i love it that was probably my favorite part of the entire movie although there are so many iconic scenes that was probably my favorite part Also, I wanted to see how you felt. So Hitchcock, he was a notorious prankster. Yes. He played practical jokes. I don't know any specifics, but I told Juliet my impression of the summary I got from Behind the Bastards is that they were like epic, sometimes years long, sometimes like career ruining slash totally humiliating. Yeah. And I wanted to see how you felt about Melanie driving two hours north from San Francisco to break into Mitch's house, rent a boat, go to a schoolhouse to find out his sister's real name, to break into his house and leave a note for her with two lovebirds, which they had a conversation about for all of five minutes the day before. It's a super weird flex. Like, I mean, we are meant to believe that she's flirting with him. That's weird. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Not the course I would take. But we're also like led to believe, you know, she is, and it's mentioned like many times in the film, she's a socialite. She's a socialite that seems like she's kind of like the 1960s equivalent of, you know, like a 2000s era Paris Hilton or a, you know, Kardashian or something like that, where... She is a known person and she is known for being a little spicy sometimes. Mm. You know, we keep hearing about this incident with a Roman fountain, you know, and, and all of these yeah. things that and have she's made naked the gossip for problems. some reason. Yeah, yeah. And she's like, I was pushed. I'm like, yeah, but I have it, questions. It out of your clothes? Yeah, <laughs> I have questions about the logistics. So we're definitely led to believe that she is, let's say, not bothered by the sort of limits of polite society Mm -hmm. and that obviously applies here you know first she impersonates a shop girl and sort of leads mitch you know again like in a kind of flirty way he makes a mistake and she plays along and they're kind of playing with each other you know where she's like she knows absolutely nothing about birds almost hysterically and he's sort of you know egging her on a little bit but then she's like does all of the things and goes yeah. to a lot of trouble and expense to like prank him yeah. i say as a question mark flirt with him so it's wh- so weird the events that happen like her renting the boat her going to the school to get kathy's real name her using the boat to get across the bay because she really wants to they, she really wants to surprise this guy makes me feel like a thread that I would have gone down when I was like a teenager in my head where I was like, well, if I see this boy, then I'll like bump into him and I'll have ice cream for some reason. And I'll just like tip the ice cream on his shirt and it'll be a talking point. And then we'll like go back to his house and he'll have to like change his shirt and then I'll get to see him without his shirt on. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. I, 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 like, this is just an example. I just want to clarify, I'm not pulling that from real real life. (laughs) I don't think I've ever used the ice cream example, but that was just the one that I pulled off the top of my head. But yeah, like, it really feels like Melanie is just kind of like going down the next 
like, okay, well, if I, if I drive up to Bodega Bay, it'll be really cute. And then I'll stop at this place and like figure out where he lives because this was a time when you could like stop at the general store and Mm -hmm. they would just point out somebody's house to you. It's such a weird plan. It's such a weird flex, but you can definitely see the whole like trickster prankster thing in whatever it is that she's doing and then like leaving it there for Mitch to find. It's so strange. I feel like it's one of those things where it's almost like an expression of like the way a man would like a woman to be as opposed to like, and you know, no shade to anybody who would actually do this, but I don't know any femme presenting people that would do that because there are too many risks involved, like Mm -hmm. scary, scary ass risks. But I feel like it's one of those things that like people who don't have to deal with the daily risks that are involved with being femme presenting people might think like, oh, that's cute and funny. And I bet a girl would do that for me. And it's like, no, no. I mean, unlikely. Hey, if you know, if you're listening to this and you would do that, cool, more power to you. But I would not. Yeah, Uh, that actually draws me to my next point. Do you think Mitch is worth driving two hours north (laughs) of San Francisco for to visit? And do you think he's worth hauling up your roots in San Francisco and then moving to Bodega Bay to be with him? No. Yeah. No. What a weird thing. Pedro Pascal, he is not. (laughs) Pedro Pascal, if you're listening. (laughs) We would do that for you. (laughs) Do you live in Bodega Bay? Call us. Email us. Text us. We're on all forms of social media. And also, um, we watch many of your TikToks (laughs) and your Instagram videos. I mean, no shame with that. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's got their thing that they watch. And Juliet's is Alaskan Raptor Center. Apparently, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But no, Mitch is an okay looking guy, like, you know, conventionally attractive 1960s movie star man person. He's a lawyer, so he's got a good job. But also, like, the initial interaction that Melanie has with him in the bird store, he plays along with her and is kind of flirting back, but he also knows who she is and Mm -hmm. is kind of shitty about it. Yeah. And makes it kind of clear that he's, like, not down for her nonsense. Yeah. So that perplexes me that she was then like, oh, no, I'm going to foist my nonsense onto you further. And then to hear Anne's story about, like, uprooting her whole life in san francisco i'm like what is it about this guy like yeah he's okay but he's not it's also san francisco like yeah we're talking a a bustling place at this point yeah a major metropolitan city so to like slow down and go to bodega bay it just feels very strange and isolating to be a teacher in a one-room schoolhouse yeah to all of the kids which are number like 20 yeah the other part is Mitch, after they have dinner that first night, he asks her to stay for dinner. So she is uh, renting the room in Annie's boarding house or the room of the boarding house. I don't know. Yeah. But when she gets ready to leave, Mitch like really kind of puts the hard like full court press on her. He's cross-examining her is exactly what he's yeah. doing. He's a criminal press or I can't remember if he said he's a defense lawyer or what, but he's, I think he's a defense lawyer okay. because of Kathy's comments about the people that he represents. That's right. That's right. But he's cross-examining her and yeah. she gets pissed and drives away. And I'm like, why would you give your time to this guy? Yeah. And, and though they get drawn together kind of in unfortunate circumstances after the fact and end up really caring for each other, that does not feel like flirty, like... I don't know if I would give another, a dude another chance if he was like, oh, well, let me cross-examine you and make you really hot and bothered, but like in a pissed way and not in like a hot way. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't feel good. No, no. And she's all mad and she's like, I'm going back to San Francisco. And then he calls. And he's like, oh, come to my sister's birthday party. And she's like, yeah, okay. Yeah. And like also drawing her into a little girl who clearly has some like idolization mm-hmm. happening there. And maybe that's how she acts when, like, whenever Mitch brings somebody home. But their age gap, like, it feels kind of manipulative to be like, oh, well, Kathy really wants you to come to her birthday party. Although the movie never states this overtly, I remember talking about this in film school when we talked about this film. I think that's part of Lydia's problem with Melanie. I think it's less about Mitch and more about 
Kathy mm-hmm. and more about the fact that like it's almost like the cool parent thing. Like right. Lydia has to be Kathy's mom all by herself because her husband has died. Kathy and Mitch's dad has died fairly recently. So she's got to be the sole parent to this young girl. Her son, you know, she is like trying to be respectful of the fact that like Mitch has a life and stuff in San Francisco and like be grateful of the fact that he does come back to help and support her. But she's kind of doing it on her own and has to be the mom. And here comes Melanie, this like cool, glamorous, fur coat wearing woman from the big city and gets to be like the fun mom to Kathy. Like, I'm going to bring her lovebirds. And, you know, like, yeah, I can see why Lydia would resent her a little bit. And Lydia is also an older, uh, older woman at this point, because Mitch, there there has to be like a 20 year gap between Mitch and Kathy. I think Kathy is supposed to be 11 Uh and Mitch is supposed to be in his early 30s. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's like a 20 year gap between the two Mm -hmm. of them. You know, Lydia's like she's an older woman and she's having to parent Kathy, an 11 year old, against Melanie, who's likely old enough to be Kathy's mom. Right. You know, and also San Francisco in in the early 60s is like the happening place yeah, to be. Yeah, it's a cool place. And Bodega Bay is not. Right. There's boats and chickens, but there's no, like, cool people that are there, no good music, you know, that's happening. So anyways, definitely an interesting dynamic there. And also sort of, like, leading back into that whole faceted thing of of Hitchcock's relationship with mother and mother figures. Mm-hmm. But I do find it interesting that he chose this particular book to adapt. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't remember if this is a book or a short story, but The Birds was written by Daphne du Maurier. And if you have not read The Birds, you might have also heard of her book called Rebecca. Which Hitchcock also adapted. Right. What is with Hitchcock picking books to adapt where women are adversarial towards one another over a man yeah that's a really good point it's very weird yeah like psycho like if if we want to dig down into it norman is embodying his own mother yeah he believes to that he is his mother when he dresses as his mother and becomes her and embodies her hatred toward other women exactly it's like very clear that there's some mommy issues present in Hitchcock's mm-hmm. movies. But in this one, it's a little bit more nuanced because you have Lydia sort of resentful of another woman coming in to parent her daughter and simultaneously receive love from her son. Yeah. But then you also have the sort of, at least initially, there's a little bit of friction between Melanie and Annie mm-hmm. towards the beginning before they kind of like have Brandy together and she's like, I got attacked by a bird. And then Annie kind of reveals their history and like why they were together. And Melanie's like, oh, nothing's between us. And it's like, mm-hmm. something's totally between them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Hitchcock just is obsessed with making movies. And I don't typically like Daphne du Maurier because I don't like pitting women mm-hmm. against one another because of a man. I feel like that's reductive at this point. But Hitchcock loves it. Yeah. He can't stop making women fight over men. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. I do think this movie is more nuanced than a lot of the others in that you see evolution throughout the film. You know, we find out that there's a parallel where both Melanie and Lydia have abandonment issues. Melanie said that her mother left the family when she was 11 and, you know, she doesn't know how to contact her or anything like that. And Lydia expresses her fear of being abandoned, you know, because of the death of her husband to have to raise Kathy alone. And knowing that Mitch is going off into the world and living his own life, she's feeling abandoned and simultaneously like feeling abandonment, but also feeling guilty about it because she also knows that her son is a grown up and needs to live his own life. And then we see the roles kind of shift and twist throughout the film where Lydia then almost acts as a mother figure to Melanie by the end of the film. Like Mm -hmm. after the bird attacks, you see her being very, very tender to Melanie. So there's evolution there and there's not like all adversarial behavior all the time. But it's still like, yeah, it's like one of the one of the many things like we've often talked about, like being over 
like just media with like rich people behaving badly. Mm-hmm. That's kind of another thing that I've been over lately is just like media where it's like women competing against women, especially for like a lackluster dude. Yep. Community over competition yeah. all the time. Amen. Promise there is plenty of room for community and no room for competition in 2023. We ain't got energy for that yeah, anymore. Exactly. <laughs> but to kind of reiterate what you were saying about Lydia later in the film becoming a mother figure, it reminded me that Melanie actually does act kind of as a mother or caring figure for Lydia at one point. Yes. After Lydia sees her neighbor with no eyeballs, she freaks out and runs straight back home, speeds home the entire time. And when she gets there, she just kind of collapses. And she sees Melanie in her nightgown and Mitch there together. And she kind of like freaks out, runs into the house. But once she calms down a little bit, Melanie goes in there and takes care of her and and kind of uh, says like, hey, here's what's going on. She sets a boundary with her and says, here's your tea. I just wanted to make sure you're, you're okay. But your son is over at the, because he's a lawyer, so... I don't know how he can help, but supposedly he can help at this. Legal stuff. Yeah. Sure. Whatever. Santa Rosa Police Department, whatever. The law. Yeah. Bird Underline. law. Underline. <laughs> Birdman. Bird law. <laughs> That's just like free associating here. <laughs> I love it. We Mitch should make a rap. secretly Harvey Birdman, attorney at law. We should make like a, a beatnik like rap album there where we, we could just, we, it's all just about the birds. There's a Harvey Birdman, bird law. Mitch. <laughs> What's his last name? Isn't it? Doesn't it start with a B? Probably. Brenner. Brenner. Yeah. Brenner, man. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so part of the reason why we covered this movie today is because this episode will release on the 60th anniversary of this movie's release. Is that right? It'll release the day before. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Uh, the movie was released on March 28th, 1963. So this movie is turning 60 this week. There will be a theatrical re-release not until, I think, October, right around Halloween. They're going to do like a, a Fathom screening. And I'm crossing my fingers that it's a new remaster because, so I've seen this film a bunch of times, a bunch of different ways over the years. And we watched the 2000 DVD, which was a remaster. It was part of a remaster series called the Hitchcock Collection. And I think that remaster combined with like newer TVs is a really good example of where remasters go awry. This has been a soapbox I've been on for a long time. (laughs) When I want to watch an older film, I don't always want to see it cleaned up and pristine. And a lot of people will argue with me like, about like whether you're seeing it the way the director intended and that like, oh, the remaster makes it the way the director intended. And I could go down a whole rabbit hole about like, well, given the technology that the director had to work with, I no. Um, <laughs> but to answer your question, no, and I will not be elaborating. Yeah. <laughs> I will take no further questions at this time. <laughs> you have that right. You can yeah, do that. <laughs> yeah. But moreover, my thing about remasters is that sometimes the really practical problem that happens is that when you clean up and upscale an older film, if it's not done precisely right, it actually really shows off the more primitive cinema effects. Or the fact that, like, a lot of our favorite, like, cult films were made, you know, with an even smaller budget than we thought. Mm-hmm. You know, I always use the example that I don't ever want to see a cleaned up Rocky Horror Picture Show. Like, uh, please, God, no. No? You know, like, I only want that film as grimy as possible, you know, gritty yeah. and grainy and all of that. But for this film super specifically... um, the upscaling highlights and you can see it really specifically in the scene where the kids are running from the school it highlights the blue screen effects that they had to do for the birds themselves and it was tricky technology back then they had blue screening but typically the way you would use a blue screen would be with minimal motion and obviously when you're doing a film that's about hordes and hordes and hordes of birds It's a lot of motion, a lot of flapping of wings and diving and flying and all of that. So when they made this, the blue screen, they were having a lot of problems with the blue outlines showing. Um, I think they call it, they actually call it feathering. And they had to 
actually go to Disney Studio because they were kind of like the masters at this. And they had the guy that was the master to do this very specific like sodium vapor treatment on the composite to get rid of that blue line feathering on the original print. But if you look at the upscaled version now, you can still see a little bit of the feathering in certain like really, really high emotion scenes. And the color is and a little bit different. Yeah. off, yeah. So it really could use just like a tiny bit of like motion blur to yeah. be added in to smooth those edges out. And it would look great. It That scene does not need to look crisp. No. It needs to be frantic. It needs to be moving and with lots of like motion and frantic energy in that scene. I am not looking to be able to see the kids' freckles. I want right. to see like that it's a frenzy. You yeah. Know, that they're just like panicked, running, sprinting away from the school, birds attacking, kids get knocked down and cuts <laughs> and stuff. Like that's what you want to see. You don't necessarily need to see every hair on their head. Yeah. My partner and I saw a 4K Jaws remaster. It was the latest reissue that they did in the theater last year. And we were really, really skeptical about that because we were like, oh God, 4K remaster of Jaws. It's not going to look right. And we were very, very impressed with the treatment of the print. We were both like really happy with it and we're kind of remarking afterwards like, wow, They did a great job on that. So I'm hoping that whoever did that remaster is also doing the birds remaster so it can look that good because that Jaws treatment really towed that line between remastering something for a good 4K theatrical grade presentation, but also not losing the fact that it is an older film. Like it still felt like an older film and didn't like look like, you know, like an older film that they tried to clean up really obviously. We should make a shirt that says make 35 millimeter nasty again. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, also, I'm let me in. just, uh, let me just pitch you another shirt idea that okay. I wrote down. Bird Witch of Bodega Bay. <laughs> yes. Okay. All right. Okay, team. Honestly. How many shirt ideas do we have I know. Now? Juliet and I, I just have like these banger shirt ideas. Mm-hmm. It is, it's ridiculous. Maybe there, there will be merch in the future. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Just yeah. saying that out loud. Who knows? Yeah. But yeah, Birdwitch of Bodega Bay. That's a good one. Make 35 millimeter nasty again. I'm writing that down because that really is. That like, one is really good. Is all encompassing for yeah. us. We've come up with so many. I just need to search like shirt in our chat and then just like write down all yes. the ones where I'm like, we need a shirt that says that. There was another thing that you said the other day. And I was like, that's shirt worthy, Juliet. Oh, it was from um, one of our Haunting of Hill House episodes. Do you want to tease it on I can, the episode? I okay. can. What yeah, did you say? I can say Oh, it. yeah. I it remember was, uh, now. Is it trauma or is it ghosts? <laughs> uh, that is uh, also applicable to my yeah. life. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to know more about that, subscribe to our Patreon. <laughs> yes, that is a perfect plug. We're going to start wearing these shirts that say, is it trauma or is it ghosts? And hopefully people, will, they'll be like, where did you get that shirt? Like, Patreon. Mm-hmm, Got mm-hmm. it. So next time, this one, I don't think the episode isn't going to be releasing like on the actual anniversary, but the next movie that we're doing actually is going to later this year celebrate its 30th anniversary of United States release. I'm so excited because I love this movie so much. So we're going down the Alex Garland, Danny Boyle rabbit hole. Love Alex Garland. Mm -hmm. And Juliet is... She's just foaming at the mouth, <laughs> pun, <laughs> <laughs> for another zombie movie, I know. Yeah. She's our resident zombie expert. I do love zombies. And honestly, if you are wondering about the origins of the modern zombie renaissance, it is not The Walking Dead. It was actually this movie that kicked it off. Yeah. We're going to be talking about 28 Days Later. The movie that I saw when I was 13 years old, and it made me absolutely 100% convinced that I would not survive a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah, cosine. Yeah. Did you see it in the theater? Uh, no, no, okay. I didn't. I did not see it until it came out on DVD. So, okay, yeah. okay. I did see it in the theater. Lucky, lucky yeah. soul. I'm sure a- terrifying. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) It's really like there had been nothing like it. No, there really hadn't. Yeah. It's a revolutionary film in a lot of ways. You know, 
we talk about how Romero moved the zombie genre forward. I would say this is another one that moved zombies forward in a big, big way. We'll get into it. It really took what Romero started and what the Italians were iterating on and then shoved it forward into a new era and really um, lit a spark for a lot of things to come. Yeah. This one is super near and dear to my heart. I really, really love this one. So catch us next time for 28 Days Later. Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com. We are Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok and Final Girls Pod on Twitter. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Tonight.